morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. Hope you had a really nice weekend. The sun finally came out in New York. It was amazing. After many days. It was Lord of the Flies in my household. <laughs> I desperately needed that. Yeah, get the kids outside. We'll hope your weekend was sunny and nice. We've got a lot of big news to get to this morning. Here are five things to know for this Monday, October 2nd. The government stayed open for now, but Washington is bracing for another chaotic week. Speaker Kevin McCarthy's leadership job is on the line with new threats of a right-wing revolt led by Congressman Matt Gates. Gates telling CNN he will file a motion to remove McCarthy as speaker this week. And happening today, Donald Trump says he'll be in court in person for the start of his high-stakes civil fraud trial in Manhattan. Also breaking overnight, California Governor Gavin Newsom picking a replacement to fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat naming the head of Emily's List, LaFonza Butler. Search is underway this morning in upstate New York for a nine-year-old girl who may have been abducted. Police say she vanished while riding her bike at a state park. And for the second straight week, Taylor Swift stealing the NFL spotlight, cheering on her rumored boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, as the Chiefs narrowly, and I stress narrowly, beat the Jets. Seeing this morning starts right now. You just made the crew in here very happy. Yes, because it's about moral victories for the Jets at this point, (laughs) not actual victories. Well, there's that. Also, this in Washington, a pivotal week ahead for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he fights to keep his job. McCarthy's allies scrambling to save him as Congressman Matt Gaetz leads a right-wing revolt to oust the Speaker. It comes after he struck a deal with Democrats to prevent a government shutdown at the last minute. I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy this week. I think we need to rip off the Band-Aid. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy. Look, the one thing everybody has in common is that nobody trusts Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy will likely need help from Democrats to get a hold onto the gavel. One caucus where he might struggle to find support in the Democratic Party is the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which has more than 100 members. The caucus chair, Pramila Jayapal, says progressives will not save McCarthy. And here is what Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez told our Jake Tapper. Would you vote to get rid of McCarthy as Would speaker? Would I cast that vote? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Kevin McCarthy is a very weak speaker. Uh, He clearly has lost control of his caucus. He has brought the United States and millions of Americans to the brink, waiting until the final hour uh, to to, um, keep the government open. Let's bring in CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, the message I got from one Democrat I was speaking to yesterday was keep our powder dry. They want to see where this kind of goes from here. What role are Democrats playing at this point? Well, they could be the determining factor, Phil, for whether or not House Speaker Kevin McCarthy can survive this ousting from Matt Gates. The question becomes, what are Democrats willing to do? And is there a price that they would be willing to try and extract from McCarthy that would be worth it for them? And that is what Democrats are trying to figure out right now. Their leadership, though, is warning that members should not be going and trying to cut a side deal with their Republican friends. Instead, the argument from leadership and this was very clear from the Democratic whip last night, is that if this comes to the floor, we are going to have a caucus meeting, we are going to discuss this as a family, and we will move forward as a unit. The concern is, of course, what the implications could be if Democrats just freelance on this issue. But there are a couple of factors to keep in mind. The trust right now with House Speaker McCarthy is not high with Democrats, especially after what happened on Saturday. Yes, they avoided a government shutdown, but just to give you a sense of the distrust that's happening. 
In the morning, Hakeem Jeffries and McCarthy, they were supposed to have a conversation around noon on Saturday. Instead, what happened was Jeffries got a whip notice that it was time to vote on the floor on a short-term spending bill. He was caught off guard, I am told, from sources familiar with those conversations. And obviously, that is just another sign, and that's really sort of looming over the week as we stare down what Matt Gates is going to do. Now, for his part— McCarthy is defiant. Here he was yesterday. He's coming for you. Can you survive? Yes, I'll survive. You know, this is personal with Matt. He's more interested in securing TV interviews than doing something. He wanted to push us into a shutdown, even threatening his own district with all the military people there who would not be paid only because he wants to take this motion. So be it. Bring it on. Let's get over with it and let's start governing. And McCarthy allies have started having conversations with Democrats about whether or not they could agree to some kind of rules change or power sharing agreement. Would that be enough to get some Democrats to help and ensure that McCarthy wasn't ousted? But again, this is a conversation that leadership says members need to be having as a family, as a caucus. This is not something that they want members just going out and deciding on their own, Phil. And a lot of steps, including some procedural to come on this before Anything final happens. Lauren, I do want to ask, the 47-day stopgap bill does not include any supplemental emergency aid for Ukraine. What happens next there? Yeah, Phil, this is a huge question mark. And obviously, you know, you heard from President Biden yesterday that he believes that there was some kind of agreement. McCarthy's office has not responded. They won't say if there was any kind of an agreement on Ukraine aid. But this is an issue that is a top priority for Republican and Democratic leadership in the United States Senate. There was a joint uh, statement that came out on Saturday night after the stopgap measure passed, saying that they were still committed to getting Ukraine aid across the finish line. So a lot of steps ahead, but obviously this is still a top priority and something that leadership wants to make clear to Ukraine and President Zelensky that they are not forgetting about this issue. They are not just leaving them behind. Bill. All right, Lauren Fox for us. Thank you. Poppy. All right, Lauren, thanks for that. This morning, California Governor Gavin Newsom is set to appoint Emily's List President LaFonza Butler to fill the late Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. When Butler is sworn in, she will become the third female black senator in U.S. history and the only black senator in the current caucus. Kyung Law joins us live from Los Angeles with more. Kyung, good morning to you. Uh, the folks that are going to run for, for Feinstein's seat, Newsom said he wasn't going to appoint them. Does her appointment come as a surprise, and what does it mean for the seat? Yeah, you know, the Democrats I've been speaking to overnight have said that this is really something that, sure, makes sense, because she is a formidable Female. figure. She is well-known in California politics. But this is something that a lot of them didn't really see coming. Um, she is someone who has a long list of credentials. You mentioned Emily's list. But she was also the senior advisor to Kamala Harris during her presidential campaign. And she has been the head of one of the most powerful unions in the state of California. So she has a long list of credentials and is well-known here. Her appointment does fulfill a promise, an important promise that Governor Newsom made to appoint a black woman, should he have the opportunity, because Kamala Harris vacated her Senate seat uh, to become Joe Biden's running mate. So in doing this, she will be the only black woman to serve in the U.S. Senate right now. She will also be a historical figure because she'll be the first black lesbian to openly serve in the U.S. Senate. Governor Newsom, in making the appointment last night, tweeted that he hopes 
Phillips says she will continue to break glass ceilings just like Senator Feinstein. But as you mentioned, Poppy, absolutely. This scrambles a race. You already have three members of Congress running for this Senate seat. Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee. Right. It is about to get much more crowded now because uh, the governor is making this appointment without any preconditions. It's really interesting. Yeah, not only is she the only black woman to serve in the current Senate, which is something that Governor Newsom got some criticism from before when he w- when he named Alex Padilla. But, but the other point is she's got some really interesting background in the private sector, in union work. So that's just going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the Senate. Yeah, and uh, certainly, especially in this race, should she decide to continue and, and run in, in, you know, in this primary and, and then in the election? Yeah, it's going to be very fascinating to watch. Chunk, thank you very much. Phil. Well, also this morning, about four hours from now, Donald Trump is set to appear in person as his New York civil fraud trial gets underway. He arrived at Trump Tower in Manhattan last night after campaigning in Iowa ahead of the January caucuses. New York's attorney general is seeking $250 million in the case against Trump, his eldest sons and their companies. They're accused of significantly inflating the value of their properties to banks and insurers for years. CNN's Kara Scanal is live outside the courthouse. Kara, there will certainly be optics reasons to watch today, but from a purely substantive perspective, what do we expect today? Well, Phil, good morning. I mean, the former president is going to attend this trial today, and he's going to square off against the judge who has already dealt a major blow to him and his business. And for Trump, the stakes couldn't be higher. Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. A monumental moment for former President Donald Trump, his family, and the company that bears his name. The New York Attorney General's civil fraud lawsuit alleging Trump, his adult sons, and his business engaged in a decade-long fraud begins in a Manhattan courtroom today. Attorney General Letitia James says Trump and others pumped up the value of multiple properties, including Mar-a-Lago, his triplex apartment in Trump Tower, the family home in New York known as Seven Springs, and numerous golf courses. By doing so, she alleges Trump lined his own pockets. Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization saved an estimated $150 million by receiving favorable interest rates that were only provided based on the false and misleading statements of financial condition. We also believe that he illegally saved millions of dollars in federal tax benefits. The case will be decided by New York State Judge Arthur N. Gorin, who has already found Trump engaged in persistent fraud for a decade, writing in a ruling last week that Trump is living in, quote, a fantasy world, and he canceled business certificates for several Trump entities. James is still seeking to hold the Trumps individually accountable and prove they conspired and falsified business records, issued false financial statements, and engaged in insurance fraud. I don't know what I did wrong. This is the first court case to put the Trump family on trial and threatens to tarnish the image Trump carefully crafted as a successful businessman and used to catapult himself to the White House. James is planning to call 28 witnesses during the trial, including the former president and all three of his adult children. Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, whose testimony on Capitol Hill in 2019 kickstarted the investigation, is also on the witness list. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets 
when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. Trump has denied any wrongdoing. This is the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country. And claims the attorney general has unfairly targeted him. She developed a political platform and made a career out of maliciously attacking me and my business before she even understood or was elected or reviewed one of the millions of pages of documents we willingly produced. So opening statements are expected to get underway when court opens this morning. The judge has set aside as much as three months for the trial. And Phil and Poppy, this is just the beginning of what is becoming a very crowded trial season for Trump as he's facing indictments on four separate charges. Right. The fact that he had to postpone deposition in a different case just so he could be in court today for the civil trial says a lot about all the, the cases on his plate. Thank you, Kara. We'll get back to you soon. The High Court, the Supreme, Justices, Supreme Court Justice, is back on the bench today, taking up some major cases at the start of the term. We'll tell you what they are ahead. And 4,000 workers represented by the UAW union avoiding a different strike overnight. And late night getting back into gear after five months of the Hollywood writer's strike came to an end. And while I'm happy that they eventually got a fair deal and immensely proud of what our union accomplished, I'm also furious that it took the studios 148 days to achieve a deal that they could have offered on day one. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. There is an urgent search underway this morning in upstate New York for a nine-year-old girl. Officials say Charlotte Senna was last seen Saturday camping with family and friends at Morrow State Park, just about 50 miles north of the state capital of Albany. Police say Charlotte had been biking a couple of loops with friends when she decided to do one more by herself and didn't come back. The family is pleading with, uh, for anyone with information to come forward. No tip is insignificant. So if anyone has 
any information at all, um, saw anything in the vicinity of the entrance to the Moreau Lake State Park or are camping here and have any information at all. State police say her bicycle was found shortly after she went missing. We'll keep you updated on this. Anyone with information is urged to call police. New this morning, a strike has been averted for nearly 4,000 United Auto Workers members after their union reached a tentative agreement with Mack Truck in Florida, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. The word first coming in a social media post from the UAW just before midnight. Details of the agreement have not been disclosed. Of course, this dispute is separate from the big UAW strike against all of Detroit's big three. Executives at Ford signaled the two sides are getting relatively close to a deal on wages and benefits. We'll keep watching that one. Well, a last-minute push by House Republicans over the weekend to strike a deal with Democrats narrowly prevented a government shutdown. Congress passed a 47-day short-term spending resolution, which includes natural disaster aid, but no additional funding for Ukraine or border security. Some Republicans think the House GOP didn't get enough out of the deal. One of those Republicans is the former president. We have to keep our government going. But I thought the Republicans got very little. I think they got very little. I think they could have done a much better deal. And uh, it was a lifesaver for Biden. It was a lifesaver for the Democrats. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, as well as CNN political commentator and Spectrum News political anchor Errol Lewis. Um, welcome, gentlemen. Good Happy morning. Day. Uh, I kind of want to put the former president aside for right now for any number of different reasons. Uh, but, <laughs> Errol, on the idea of, you know, Matt Gates went on with Jake Tapper, made the big announcement that he's going to make his move finally. McCarthy says, bring it on. The reality is that probably 200 plus Republicans support McCarthy. It's a very small group here. I'm thinking big picture. What does this do for the Republican conference in the House? I think it shows the, the fault lines and it's going to force them, I think, to sort of come to terms with reality. I think Matt Gates may have overplayed his hand. We'll find out. But the, the reality is uh, without even involving the Democrats, there are enough avenues there that the Republicans can thwart what it is he is trying to do. For uh, for members like the freshman Michael Lawler uh, to come out and call Matt Gates a charlatan, mm-hmm. I mean that's very harsh language coming from a freshman. Uh, but he felt comfortable doing it. He meant it. He's one of the 18 Republicans in pro Biden districts whose survival is at stake, and it's really those 18 versus. Matt Gates and the 21 hardliners who are going to fight for control of the Republican conference. I like McCarthy's chances of steering a, a course through those because they're sort of equal in, in numbers. And he's got on his side common sense and the, the willingness to try and run the government. Matt Gates is arguing for what? He wants to blow up the whole government over how appropriations bills are being handled? I don't think anybody's going to buy it. What is it? Go ahead, Dan. Look, the good news is the center held. You know, at the 11th hour again. And it happened because a supermajority of Democrats supported a major, you know, majority of, of Republicans. And the far right is trying to hold, you know, the country hostage, trying to hold McCarthy hostage. At some point, you know, McCarthy's got to say, as he is, bring it on. Let's see if you've got He's the strength to do it. He's literally saying that. He's literally saying that. Now, look, let's not forget uh, I don't think he's, you know, Democrats are going to bail out Kevin McCarthy. Certainly the progressives aren't. They made that, that was clear pretty clear yesterday. Show. Yeah. But look, First of all, speakers don't need to be members of the House. And wouldn't it be nice if this was actually a liberating moment for the center to stop being dependent upon these extremes? If it can't be Kevin McCarthy, what if Republicans put forward a moderate like Don Bacon, who could get moderate Democratic support? We need to stop having these parties, polarization, drive all our politics and end up being beholden to the extremes. 
And, and this is a good as moment as any for that moment of truth. Errol, what does it mean, like, beyond this 47 days? Let's hope we get through it. Let's hope we get something that lasts longer. Let's see what happens with Ukraine funding and border funding. But that he leads a conference that he cannot promise there will be 218 votes to get behind bills moving forward. Right. We well, I mean, look, that's, that. that's been the problem all along. Right. I mean, but it is, it is so clear now. It is, it is, right. It is very clear. And he, he's unable to do, uh, it's not considered a formal uh, aspect of running the government, but it's a political reality that if you shake hands, metaphorically or literally, with the president of the United States and say, we're going to do funding at a certain level, and this is going to see us through the end of the year, and then you go back on and the sort of deal. have to, oh, yes. the, the, the government deal from May, and then you come back and try to reopen it and, and undo it, Nothing works. Nothing in this system is designed for that level of instability. And I think that's really one of the big lessons here. If the instability that was forced onto us, that almost resulted in really sort of catastrophic cuts and disruption for millions of families, uh, if, if that's the way we're going to govern, and if that's what we're going to see again when this 45 days runs out the week before Thanksgiving, I think what it says is that we've got a, a level of instability that this system just is not going to allow. But we do within the Republican conference. Look, this is not just a Kevin McCarthy problem. Before him, John Boehner and then Paul Ryan couldn't ultimately corral their far right. Um, every shutdown in the past 30 years has begun with a Republican House. So this is a problem within the Republican conference about the far right being far too powerful. Uh, and, and I think the Wall Street Journal editorial joked over the weekend, you know, who's, who would be the next speaker? It's kind of like being in line to be Henry VIII's next wife. <laughs> it's not going to end well. It's a good reference. I like that. I also appreciate Newt Gingrich weighing in yeah, uh, on God, McCarthy's that's behalf, rich. the richness of that, uh, which we can get into later at some point. I know John was interested in it. Um, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, naming LaFonza Butler uh, to be the replacement, the interim replacement for Dianne Feinstein. Obviously, there is a very heated Democratic race going on. He didn't select any of the three members of Congress that are already running. Uh, what, what's your take now that this has been named? It was named quickly. It was, it was done quickly. It was, look, Gavin Newsom was playing California politics. And outside of, you know, San Francisco, not even the whole Bay Area, outside of San Francisco, this may not make sense. It seems, you know, like a... Well, it, it may seem like identity politics, you know, sort of uh, taken to an extreme. I mean, he really sort of announced in advance what the criteria would be. And those criteria didn't necessarily make a lot of sense in terms of, you know, getting uh, the, one of the candidates over the finish line. He's, he's decided both that it was going to be a black woman who who's going to appoint, but that it wouldn't be anybody who was currently running, that it would be a caretaker position. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do your politics. That wasn't necessarily the, the best way from a governance standpoint for his politics. Again, his California politics. Well, sure. You know, and he threw labor into boot, right? So LaFonza Butler is labor, a... Yeah. abortion. Absolutely. Right? I mean, the fact that she runs Emily's List, I'm not sure everyone knows what that is, but they work to elect Democrats who are, you know, who, who support abortion rights. So, so yeah. no, no, none of his progressive base in San Francisco could complain about that. It also sets him up nicely for the national run that we're all expecting from him at some point. Um, you know, that's, that's what it is. Now, will this end up in the best senator uh, long term for California. We'll need another year to figure that out. John Errol, thank you. <laughs> Stick around. Donald Trump back in New York this morning. He's actually going to be in court. His choice, he'll be there in person for a high stakes civil fraud trial in lower Manhattan. And the New York Jets coming off back to back losses, looking to shake it off. See what we did there against the Chiefs last night. Taylor Swift was there. She had a lot of famous friends with her. We're going to talk about it because everyone is. That's next.
Continues. Taylor Swift is in the building <laughs> here to check out the Jets and the Chiefs, but more specifically, obviously, Travis Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Swift's football era, it continues, really putting the that NFL on the one. map. She's putting the NFL on the map. Finally, people are paying attention. The second straight week, she watched Travis Kelsey and the Kansas City Chiefs in action. Her trip to MetLife Stadium closely documented, as you can see. Cameras cut to her, oh, just 17 times during the broadcast. She showed up with some famous friends, Blake Lively, Ryan Reynolds, and Hugh Jackman also there. Her presence adding to the swirl of questions about her relationship with Kelsey. Did you know there was actually a game last night, too, a football game? And it was a pretty exciting one where the Kansas City Chiefs beat the New York Jets 23-20. to Joining us now to discuss this budding romance are Constant Grady, senior correspondent at Vox, and Vanity Fair contributor Case Wickman. Um, guys, appreciate you being here. The thing that I actually appreciate about this as both an NFL fan and somebody who enjoys Taylor Swift's music is it's just fun. Like, I don't want to think too deeply about it. And yet, everyone is talking about it. Why? I mean, she does literally have a song called Mastermind. <laughs> so... You know, Taylor Swift sees what, or we see what Taylor Swift wants us to see. It's, it's just fun, you know? She's the queen of the Easter egg. She's dropping clues everywhere. It's just fun to watch her, and she knows that. You know what's interesting? First of all, she's with Donna Kelsey, the, the brother's mother, who I just love, 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 love. I got to talk to her before the Super Bowl, and she's amazing. They look like they're having a lot of fun. Taylor's last relationship was very private. Yeah, she was. So this is different. She was with Jill Alwyn for six years, and they were very rarely photographed together, seen together. She wrote a lot of songs that she dedicated to him, but that was really all we saw of their relationship. Um, But this is kind of a return to form for her. Before her Jill Alwyn relationship, she was photographed a lot with her boyfriends. She kind of would use the photographs as sort of teasers for the songs that would come next. And I think we're seeing that a little bit here. That's part of the fun of this relationship or potential relationship is you can just sort of think, what song is Taylor Swift going to write about dating a football star? That sounds really cool. And terrifying if you're the football star. (laughs) Can I ask, this is not me, but to play devil's advocate, I had uh, uh, a friend say, this is all an act, right? You have, she's on 17. I'm not going to name names here because I don't want anybody to get destroyed on social media forever challenging Taylor Swift and her intentions. But, you know, they show her 17 times last night. One of the times, I think, went straight into her movie, which is coming out and has already sold out everywhere. Um, Is this real? Maybe. Yes. Yes. They're spending time together. They're, I mean, they're both very much in the public eye and are very aware of that. Um, Yeah, I mean... There hasn't been any any hard confirmation from either side. No one's, yes, you know, I've got my T and T. But, um, you know, they're definitely spending time together, but it's, it's definitely good for both of them. I'd say no matter what, they're raising each other's profiles. Um, I mean, I... I'm not a habitual Sunday night football watcher. Yeah. Um, and I watched, I watched the Taylor Swift game last night. The Taylor Swift um, game, guys, that says it all. Not the Jets-Chiefs game. Right, we got a lot of Jets fans Taylor in here who are more than happy to Swift give that game. to Taylor Swift. But in all seriousness, I mean, the NFL already rate, rates really high, but now ratings are up even more. She was on his podcasts. Who does this help more? I mean, I think very clearly 
Taylor Swift does not need help to go mainstream in a way that Travis Kelsey does. He's obviously a very big deal. He's won two Super Bowls, but he is only now starting to cross over into the mainstream. Since she showed up at his game last week for the first time, sales of his jersey have gone up like 400%. He's picked up over a million followers across social media. This is really making him a mainstream star in a way he never was before. It's good for Taylor's profile, too, but she does not need that kind of help. It's good that, I mean, Taylor's finally putting Travis Kelsey on the map, right? She's like, it was important for people, for people to finally figure out that he's okay at football. Their podcast is great, by the way. Um, shout out to Luna, your daughter. Oh, thank you. were going to be on stage <laughs> with Taylor Swift this morning and instead was with us, but we still say hi. <laughs> like, thank you, guys. Appreciate thank it, as always. Thank you. Well, Simone Biles doing Simone Biles things, making history this weekend. The incredible vault she pulled off that's now named after her. Also, Attorney General Merrick Garland responding to accusations of political bias in the Justice Department. Your critics say that it's time to ruin Mr. Trump's chances in the election. We're going to show you his answer to that question next. The Justice Department has general practices about not making significant overt steps or charging within a month or so of an election. We are clearly outside that, uh, that time frame uh, in these cases. Your critics say that it's time to ruin Mr. Trump's chances in the election. Well, that's absolutely not true. Justice Department prosecutors are nonpartisan. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland last night responding to Donald Trump and critics who argued that the former president's le current legal mess was engineered to sabotage his 2024 bid for the White House. But Trump is expected back in court in just hours as the New York Attorney General's fraud case against him heads to trial. He's accused of a decades-long scheme to enrich himself by inflating the value of properties that launched him to fame. Everything I touched turned to gold. Well, New York is doing great. I will tell you, uh, whether it's 40 Wall Street or whether it's Trump Tower or any of the other things that we own is, is doing great. I'm really rich. I'm very rich. I built an unbelievable company. The money you're talking about is a lot. Errol Lewis and John Avon are back with us. We just note that his legal bills are still being paid by donors for the most part, um, given his wealth. Today, we talked about this when uh, the judge first came out with a summary judgment. This is the thing that gets at the heart of Donald Trump and who he is. And my understanding is he's pretty upset uh, and angry about it. It's part of the reason why he's actually physically showing up today. What's your sense of what actually happens going forward here? He's in a lot of trouble. Uh, this, is, this does strike at the heart of things. It's, it's, it's different from all of the, the criminal cases. Put all of that aside. This is longstanding practices by Donald Trump for which he's now being held to account. And what this could do is cancel his ability to easily do business in New York and really harm his ability to get financing, to continue to sort of run his real estate empire. That is, that's, that's real serious. And, and, and frankly, it does, as, as the clip suggested, it goes to the heart of who he is and his public presentation. And so uh, this kind of undermines a big part of his case. Even his political opponents back in 2016 never really went there and said, you know, he's kind of a fraud as a businessman. He kind of lies about the value of his properties. He's not as rich as he says. Nobody really sort of got into that. A court might end up finding that, and that could have that. That introduces a new part of the political conversation that we have not heard up until now. You, I think great. that's I think that's right, and I think also that the fact that Trump's going to be in court today, where he's tried to avoid 
you know, situations where he might be, be under oath because he takes this so personally, I think makes it a moment that is worthy of our attention. This is not the kind of, you know, uh, coverage that's a procedural. This is a big moment for the exact reasons that Errol said. This is a guy whose entire rise is predicated upon the idea that he's a very rich, successful billionaire. You know, the fact that you said that because it's a civil trial, he doesn't have to be in court. He will have to be in court for the criminal trial yes. coming up. He didn't go to the E. Jean Carroll trial, Correct. for example. What does that tell us about what is important to him? It's all about the money. It's all about the Benjamins. And Michael Cohen, his former consigliere, made this point. You know, th th this is something that's been hiding in plain sight. And it's not like getting Al Capone on tax evasion, as some people have suggested, because it does go to the core of his identity. And he will. He has taken this personally. And that judge's initial, you know, that, that was a blistering. And uh, the judge house. gets to decide this one. Yes. Not a jury. The same judge. Yes. Which is an interesting point. It's a great point because... Um, the former president attacked the judge, yeah. along with uh, Letitia James, uh, in a social media post last night. You're a lawyer. Would you advise attacking the judge? Who? Oh, no. <laughs> no you don't. Oh, no, you don't, especially if there's no jury. I mean, you know, it's one thing to attack the process in the court because you're trying to sort of, you know, sort of identify one or two jurors that you can flip to your side. In this case, the judge is the whole case. And uh, the judge is going to determine the law. And the judge has already determined as a matter of law that yeah. this is somebody who has committed a lot of fraud. So he's really kind of on the back foot. I mean, he's kind of coming in here as an underdog. That's probably yeah. why he's showing up in person. But uh, no, you, you, don't, you don't attack the court. You don't attack the law. I mean, they, they repeated uh, the same arguments over and over again. And the judge slapped it down, sanctioned the lawyers, fined them each $7,500. And, right. you know, this, you, you can't just keep saying it. Like, I get it. He, he says... This is how real estate is done. I've lied about Trump Tower for years. It's only 58 stories tall, but I charge people more by saying it's 68 floors, you know. But the judge has said, you, you, can't, you can't do that to an extreme. You, and you don't get to put an asterisk at the bottom of it saying, you know, everything in my financial statement, you know, has not been checked, has not been fully audited. It might be a lie. That's not how you do commercial business. And that's really what the, the, the judge has said. Attacking him for saying that? I don't know if it's going to change his mind. Attacking the judge, attacking the court, attacking the system of laws uh, is what Donald Trump does. But this is a place where he gets could get in uh, trouble. And just one thing to know, it's not a jury because that's what Donald Trump's legal team That's right. He has the right to a way, jury. Right? He, so that's he, just really going to be interesting to see how that mm -hmm. choice plays out. Mm -hmm. Merrick Garland last yeah. night. Everyone might not have seen it last night. Scott Pelley did a brilliant interview, I thought, with Merrick Garland. And at one point, we showed you him responding to criticism. But at one point later in the interview, Merrick Garland chokes up and he is talking about democracy and his family history and some of his family members fleeing the Nazis, not surviving. It was just really interesting to see that perspective from him, given all of the incoming that he's facing, all, all of the criticism for how uh, that department has handled a number of the probes here, including the Hunter Biden probe, um, just just given his history and and and. and to, to see that from him, I was struck. That's the legacy that we all are here to defend, all our families. And we forget sometimes in the day-to-day the -day thrust and parry of politics that what's really at stake is democracy. It's self-government. And that's something we should all feel emotionally about. Merrick Garland's getting heat from someone on the left who says he didn't move fast enough while Donald Trump and everybody says it's a, or he's been radical and, and a witch hunt. This is about equal justice under law. This is about defending principles that are bigger than all of us. And it should provoke that kind of emotion. Thank you guys very much. Errol, John, appreciate Thanks, it. Guys.
Well, it's too hot in the Twin Cities. An annual marathon in Minnesota canceled just hours before it was supposed to start. Poppy, how'd you let that happen? I Well, <laughs> I know. That's all my mom was talking about all weekend is how hot it is at home. But I feel for those folks who are all looking forward to the run. You do not expect this in October in Minnesota. No, but you also don't want to run in hot weather. Don't you know? Uh, meantime, from freedom of speech to gun rights and abortion access, the Supreme Court has a busy term ahead, a really significant one for the country. We'll break it down next. Live look at the Supreme Court this morning as the sun comes up in Washington. The court justices set to begin a new term today. They have a packed docket ahead of them. Major cases include Second Amendment, gun rights, abortion, social media, and government regulation. The high court faces all of this amid growing concerns about ethics and lack of standards for the justices themselves on that front. The public is not pleased with the court right now. A new Gallup poll shows the Supreme Court approval rating is just 41 Joan Biskupic joins us live from Washington. I know you'll be down there as they take the bench. Joan, it's good to see you. Walk us through the big, big cases ahead for them this term. Sure. Good morning, Poppy and Phil. Uh, Yeah, a real sense of uh, excitement, apprehension, but also, as you say, new scrutiny for their off-bench behavior. Uh, First of all, a major Second Amendment case. Uh, Back in 2022, the justices really uh, limited what states can do on gun control by saying that uh, judges would interpret the statutes based on the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. And that caused a uh, set of judges down in the southwest part of the country to uh, strike down a federal ban on uh, gun possession if someone has had a domestic violence restraining order. So it's uh, a case where the federal government has come up and appealed and said, look, we can still look to text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment, but states and the federal government still must be able to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people and citizens who are not law-abiding. So that's an important case where we'll get some more clarity, I believe, in this upcoming term on the reach of the Second Amendment. Another case involves, a series of cases involves the power of uh, federal regulators, for example, over the environment, public safety, uh, uh, consumer choices. And tomorrow, uh, Poppy and Phil, the justices are going to hear a case that involves the um, federal agency that was set up after the 2008 financial crisis to protect consumers from scams. And this involves a challenge to its funding mechanism, which doesn't really, they don't get money, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau doesn't get money through the regular appropriations that Congress would do each year, but rather from uh, the Federal Reserve System. And there's a question on that agency's, uh, the constitutionality of that funding, but it would, it Uh, If the court rules against the agency, it could jeopardize the last 12 years of decisions that have protected consumers when it comes to mortgages, credit cards, car loans. And then finally, I want to mention another one already on the calendar, and this involves social media companies and whether states in this situation, Florida and Texas, can limit what platforms such as Facebook are able to take down uh, from their platforms uh, uh, content that they they might find would be misleading or false. And it's a big First Amendment question, Poppy. Joan, the court may also take up the case on on Mifepristone, right? The the challenge to the availability of the commonly used abortion pill. We've been talking about this now for months. Um, This would be the next major dramatic abortion-related case, the first since Dobbs. How do you think the court's going to handle this? 
That's right. And this is the first one since 2022 when they just rolled back the right to the constitutional right to abortion. This one will be different, I think, Phil and Poppy, because it not only involves the abortion medication drug Mifepristone, it involves the Federal uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration's authority to use its own expertise to say what drugs are safe and effective. So you've got two things at stake here. The availability of this drug that's now used for most uh, abortions nationwide, but also the federal agency, again, it goes to federal regulatory power, that's right now tasked with deciding what drugs should be put on the market. Yeah, all this while they deal with major ethics concerns and what the code of conduct is going to be. Joan, we're going to have you back soon to talk about that and a lot more. Thank you very much. Thank you. So just how good is Simone Biles? I'll answer that. Very good. Well, she now has a fifth move named after you. We're going to show it to you next. Also, Kevin McCarthy facing threats to his speakership from inside his own conference. Will this moment lead to bipartisanship or just more division? I think he is in trouble. But I'm just going to be totally blunt. There are a lot of trust issues in my chamber right now. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Let's just end the Nobel Committee announcing that a Hungarian and U.S. scientist have jointly won the Nobel Prize in medicine. Catlin Carico and Drew Weissman were awarded the prize for their discoveries that enabled the development of the effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. Major congratulations to them. Also, sad for a lot of runners in Minnesota this weekend, the annual Twin Cities Marathon canceled on Sunday after record heat swept the region, the high Sunday in Minneapolis, St. Paul, 92 degrees. That broke the record for an October day. It was about 26 degrees above normal. Organizers said the heat made it just too risky to run this year. The marathon draws about 8,000 runners, 300,000 spectators. Some runners decided to go for it anyways. Look at them. Good for them reaching the finish line by noon. Well, Simone Biles making more history at the World Gymnastics Championships in Belgium. Biles became the first woman to land the Yurchenko double pike vault during an international competition. I often practice that at home. That's a move historically done by men. So by rule, the women's version will be named after her. It is now called the Biles II, which is the fifth gymnastics element bearing her name in the vault, floor exercise, and balance beam. Just, just breathtaking every time I watch it. My efforts to practice doing that myself. No, and that gave me like the worst vision, by the way, Phil, (laughs) you trying to do that at home. Simone Biles is breathtaking. Sorry, I didn't say that. Stick to baseball. And I love the comeback, and she's as darn good as everybody thinks she is. Totally, totally. CNN This Morning continues right now. Kevin McCarthy caught almost everyone off guard with a plan to work with House Democrats. I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy. So be it. Bring it on. Let's get over with it. It's not up to Democrats to save Republicans. 
opening statements to get underway in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud trial against Donald Trump and his eldest sons. The former president is expected to attend in person. This is the greatest witch hunt. We have lost track of all the different venues and courtrooms and cases he has. Gavin Newsom has picked a replacement to fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat, the head of Emily's List, LaFonza Butler. Her appointment does fulfill an important promise that Governor Newsom made. Time and again, we have been told what we can and cannot do. As you can see, good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us on this Monday. So much news, including that fast and surprise appointment by the governor of California. Big news from Gavin Newsom, but also, even though the government is open, congrats for governing. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's headache, not over. Not over. At Maybe all. getting worse. Maybe getting worse. It is a crucial week for Speaker McCarthy as he fights to keep his job, and his fate could rest in the hands of Democrats. Congressman Matt Gates is leading a Republican revolt to oust McCarthy after he struck a last-minute deal with Democrats to prevent a government shutdown. Gates says he'll be making his move sometime this week. The only way... Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House at the end of this coming week is if Democrats bail him out. You also will have to get Democratic votes to kick him out. Uh, absolutely, I will make no deal with Democrats and concede no terms to them. I actually think Democrats should vote against Speaker McCarthy for free. A big group of Democrats that could spell trouble for McCarthy is the Congressional Progressive Caucus. It has more than 100 members. The chairwoman of the caucus, Pramila Jayapal, has said progressives will not save McCarthy. Over the weekend, the speaker was defiant in the, threat, in the face of that threat from Matt Gaetz. He's coming for you. Can you survive? Yes, I'll survive. You know, this is personal with Matt. He wants to take this motion. So be it. Bring it on. Let's get over with it. And let's start governing. That's worth keeping in mind. McCarthy's deal to keep the government funded is only temporary, 47 days. We're going to be in the same exact position with a potential shutdown just next month. And one of the big unresolved sticking points is funding for Ukraine. Joining us now, CNN Early Start anchor and chief national affairs analyst Casey Hunt. Um, Casey, one of the things that's interesting to me right now is Democrats are not a monolith, nor are Republicans. The question I have is not can Speaker McCarthy get the votes. It's how is Matt Gates whipping votes right now? Do we have any sense if he can get to 218 in any way, shape or form to actually bounce McCarthy? Well, I think the question around getting to 218 is whether there's somebody other than McCarthy who can get the votes it takes to become speaker. And right now, I think the answer to that is absolutely not. And that is the central problem for Gates. You can't beat somebody with nobody. However, he can, as we've discussed, create all sorts of headaches. And I do think there's a question about how many people are with Gates, because if it's, you know, six or 10 votes, six or eight votes, that might be a situation where Kevin McCarthy could get what he needs from Democrats. If it's more like 20 votes, it becomes more complicated. And the reason it's more complicated is because of all those faces that you just showed on the screen. And Gates, you know, <laughs> there's been at least one, perhaps two congressional aides who've been anonymously out there saying over the weekend that Gates is not stupid. He is a smart man who doesn't seem to, in their words, have morals. Um, he's not dumb. He knows what he needs. And he's been courting uh, congressional Democrats, progressives, to try to tell them, hey, you know, you should be with me in getting rid of Kevin McCarthy. The Democratic establishment, I think you saw over the weekend, has been making some moves to try to keep Democrats together on this to make a collective decision about whether or not they want to save McCarthy's hide. And they clearly haven't figured that out yet. But I will say, and Phil, 
I mean, you, you know this uh, as well as anybody. You know, the, the House former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was also out saying, you know, I think you should follow the leader. She got all the, all Democrats to follow the leader when she was in charge. Obviously, Kevin McCarthy cannot do what she did. He keeps saying, oh, I got a narrow majority. So did Nancy Pelosi had a very narrow majority and she didn't have these problems. So I do think Democrats are capable of standing together. Uh, but there are some questions that still have to be answered. This is what Congressman Alexander Ocasio-Cortez said to Jake uh, when asked that question. Here it is. But would you vote to vacate? Would you vote to get rid of McCarthy as would speaker? Would I cast that vote? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Kevin McCarthy is a very weak speaker. Uh, he clearly has lost control of his caucus. So the question is, do the Democrats stick together and, and do that? I mean, Pelosi's answer to Jake also about, like, I'd follow Hakeem Jeffries was telling. Right. Well, and I think that that's what the, the letter was aimed at, people like uh, Cortez. So, again, Democratic leaders sent a letter out to their whole caucus saying, let's not say anything about this yet. Let's have a chance to see what happens. Let's talk to each other. Let's all get on the same page. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, people are going to start asking questions of all these members, and they're going to have to answer for themselves. And I think AOC uh, really laid out kind of a clear line for those who are in a position where she is, whose voters are not going to reward them for helping Kevin McCarthy, right? The reality is there is a similar dynamic inside the Democratic Party. There are people who, uh, you know, are from more moderate areas of the country for whom, you know, helping out Kevin McCarthy, they can sell that in a campaign. They can say, you know, it's bipartisan. I was, I was governing. I was trying to help. There are the demands from the left of the, the Democratic caucus. They play out a little bit differently than they do on the right, but they exist, right? There are voters out there who say, are saying to some of these members of the House, like, why would you help a Republican? That doesn't make any sense. Kevin McCarthy is not trustworthy. The impeachment inquiry, actually, is, is one thing that I think we're going to be talking a lot about because Democrats are are upset that Kevin McCarthy, you know, gave in to his hardliners and allowed that impeachment inquiry to go forward. We saw the first hearing last week. Uh, you know, that actually could come back to bite him in this fight that's about to play out this week. Yeah, there's a huge lack of trust. <clears throat> and you might say, well, that's obvious. These are political parties. But th it's very, very serious and palpable on this. I do, Casey, before we let you go, um, big political news last night. Governor Gavin Newsom announcing uh, in the wake of Dianne Feinstein's death that the interim replacement will be LaFonza Butler. Uh, what do you make of, one, how quick this decision was and the individual herself? Well, I do think Gavin Newsom had some time to think about this uh, because obviously the Senate, late senator's health challenges were well known. Um, I do think it's very interesting that he decided to go with somebody who potentially has a future in this seat because the conversation had been previously that it would be somebody who would essentially take care of it while the election played out. There are three other major candidates, Adam Schiff, uh, Katie Porter, and uh, Barbara Lee in particular is one who has a lot of support uh, from her fellow members of Congress. Newsom had promised he was going to pick a black woman for this seat. She's only the third black woman to ever serve uh, in the Senate. But I think there is a sense that she might run for the seat, that she has you know, political uh, aspirations of her own for it. So um, we'll see. It could really upend the race here. If she decides she's going to step back, uh, then obviously that's not what would play out. But, you know, Lee has been trailing in some of the polling out in California. So I think it wasn't clear uh, that she would, would necessarily be the choice of the voters. But I do think there's some angry Democrats in Washington. They're, they're, they don't want to obviously say uh, bad things about this choice. They don't want to be saying uh, negative things about the person that is now going to be the senator. But I think there are some people who are disappointed that this was not uh, Barbara Lee. Casey Hunt, thanks for the analysis. See you soon. Great to see you guys. Thanks for having me.
Well, in just a few hours, Donald Trump's civil fraud trial will be getting underway at a Manhattan courthouse. And the former president says there, he will be there. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is at the magic wall to walk us through what we should expect. Um, all right. Who are the parties? What are, what are the main parties in these allegations? Yeah, Phil, this is happening just a few hours right here in New York City. And Donald Trump, by the way, is expected to be physically present for this trial. He doesn't have to be, but he's apparently made that choice. Now, important to understand. This is a civil lawsuit. It's not a criminal case. It's not an indictment brought by the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, of course, against Donald Trump and his adult children and his business entities. The core allegation the AG is making is that Trump grossly inflated his personal net worth by billions of dollars over many years. Let me give you just real quick. There's a bunch of different properties involved. I think there's one example here that really tells the story. Mar-a-Lago, the actual buildings at Mar-a-Lago were assessed by the Palm Beach County Assessor at $20 million. But when it came time to value it, Donald Trump and his businesses claimed it was worth $500 million. Obviously an enormous difference. And then what would they do? Why would they inflate these beyond ego purposes? They would then take those inflated figures, according to the allegations, go to banks and get loans, much bigger loans, much bigger lines of credit at better rates of interest than they would have otherwise. That is the core allegation the AG is making here. One of the fascinating parts of this entire thing. And Poppy keyed me in on this. I think you guys were having a pretty uh, expansive conversation yeah. about it last week that was fascinating to me. This case is going to be decided by a judge. It is. Not a jury. Why? It is. Because the parties have chosen that. A really interesting strategic decision. Normally in a trial, in a civil trial, you'd have a judge presiding, handling the law. And you'd have a jury in a, in a criminal trial, it'd be 12. In a civil trial like this, it would be six. You'd have a jury deciding who's liable and who's not liable, and then awarding damages. Here, the parties have agreed, we're not going to use a jury. We're going to leave this all up to Judge Arthur Engelrod. Now, Trump may be having second thoughts about that. He's already made the decision because just last week, Judge Engelrod issued a blistering ruling, ruling in favor of the AG on one of the important counts against Trump for persistent or repeated fraud. Judge Engelrod really lit into Trump and said Trump was living not in a fantasy in a fantasy world, not the real world. Now, Donald Trump has responded by lashing out publicly against the judge. I won't read the whole thing, but the usual attacks on a judge. That's an unorthodox strategy to lash out at the very person who's going to be deciding your case. And it'll be interesting to see today whether the judge says anything to try to limit Donald Trump's public statements about him. Assuming the social media posts are not it, what would be the defense for yeah, Trump here? This is not the defense. There are going to be defenses. Trump's going to fight this. His team will argue, first of all, when you're assessing real estate, there is a degree of subjectivity. People can differ. The judge said in his, in his opinion last week, yes, maybe by 10 or 20%, but not by 25 times, for example, like we just saw with Mar-a-Lago. Trump's also going to argue, well, we put a waiver in our documents. Basically, what we said is all these numbers we're giving you, banks, they're worthless. They actually call it the worthless cause. The judge also was not overly impressed by that. He said the worthless clause itself is worthless. And Trump's going to argue there's no victim here. There's no loss because the banks all got repaid with interest. Actually, it does not matter for the one count the judge already ruled against Trump on, but it does matter for the other claims. So that'll be a defense as well. What are the potential penalties? Financial and the future of the business. Uh, Tisha, Attorney General James is seeking up to $250 million in damages and Trump's business certificate could be canceled. They'll have to maybe install an independent monitor or an outsider to come in and unwind all the business. It's a real existential threat to Donald Trump's business and real estate empire. All right, Ali Honig, big day today. Thank Lots you. To watch. Yep. Poppy. Thanks, Fascinating, thank you both. Okay, the search for this missing nine-year-old girl is ramping up this morning in New York State. Officials say Charlotte Senna, you see her there. 
was last seen Saturday camping with family and friends at Moreau State Park. That's about 50 miles north of the capital of Albany. Police say Charlotte had been biking a couple of loops with friends when she decided to do one more by herself, but didn't come back. An Amber Alert was issued Sunday morning after an exhaustive search of the area, leaving law enforcement to believe Charlotte may have been abducted and is in imminent danger. They rode bikes around the loop road we see. They camped, they cooked out, and they're here to make memories, the kind that last a lifetime. But instead, the day turned into every parent's nightmare. Hopefully there'll be a reunion. Hopefully there'll be a family that has been traumatized but is reunited. That is our prayer and our hope at this time. That is the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, speaking there. It, she is so right, John Miller, as we bring you in. It is every parent's worst nightmare. It is. And this is a critical time. You know, the, the, the statistics tell us in possible abductions, which this well may be, you know, that first 24 to 48 hours um, is critical because it'll tell you the difference between is this someone who was taken and then released shortly after by somebody or is there something possibly worse going on here? And they're using just about every resource you can think of. Helicopters, thermal imaging, license plate readers, video, to the extent that it's available in that park. They have some of that technology in the area, uh, but it's not like had this happened in Albany or New York City. What about what you've seen so far, what you've heard so far about what happened stands out to you? Well, the, the good part about it is there is a rapidity to the reporting here, which is she's riding her bike around 6 o'clock. Um, she goes for one more loop around this circle that she and the other kids have been riding in, and she does that by herself. But it's reported by about 647 after they've done their search. I think the arbiter was once they found her bike during that search, they realized, you know, she's not on it. She hasn't gone too far. She didn't get lost. Something's really wrong. All right. We're going to keep a close eye on this. Please keep us posted with your reporting. John Miller, thank sure. you. Thank you. Well, Kevin McCarthy is under immense pressure this morning after his bill to avert a government shutdown. Got more Democratic support than from his own conference. And his speaker is his speakership a danger? We're going to ask Republican Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar, who voted for that bill. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I think he is in trouble. Part of that is because there has to be some level of strong leadership in our chamber. I'm just going to be totally blunt. There are a lot of trust issues in my chamber right now. If the situation were reversed and, and the squad tried to do the same to um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, should he be speaker at some point, I can tell you what I would do on the first and 100th vote. I would vote to table it. Kevin McCarthy's speakership facing a direct challenge this morning. That's two GOP lawmakers you just heard with very different takes on Congressman Matt Gaetz's vow to take McCarthy's speaker gavel away, or at least try. As we mentioned earlier, McCarthy is facing pressure for his handling of the bill to avert a government shutdown and the fact that he worked with Democrats to get it done. Joining us now, Republican Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar of South Florida. She voted for the continuing resolution that averted the shutdown. She's also a member of the Committee on Foreign Affairs in the House. Congresswoman, I appreciate your time. One question uh, for people who maybe don't follow your conference day to day. How widespread is the view of Matt Gates inside your 221 members? I would say it's very, thank you for the opportunity. I would say it's very limited, but you know that's democracy. Democracy is messy. 
but I would say that uh, Kevin McCarthy is the man for the job, and he has an overwhelming majority of members within the GOP conference. We're with him. You know why? Because he's done a good job. And if it's not him, who? And I, I think you raised the the most important question at this point in time. Yeah. But in terms of Gates has been so public about this push uh, and his desire to do so now apparently reaching the moment, what does that and tell good you? good for him. Good for him. He can do it. Thank God, thank God we're in a free society. The First Amendment protects him to say whatever thing he wants to. I sit with him very often. I talk to him once in a while. He is a member of Congress and we respect his opinion, but it does not mean that we share it. And it's time to go to work. It's time to use this 45, day, 45 days that we have from now until November 15th to put together legislation one by one and fund the government for the next year. That's it. Enough of this nonsense. Because the American people out there holding two jobs and trying to figure out how to pay for rent are saying, what are these people doing in Washington? Well, we're trying to legislate. And that's exactly what we want to do. Help McCarthy do that and push the cart forward. You're making a, a really good point because you now only have six weeks to try and do what hadn't been done in the nine months prior, but this is going to eat up time. Uh, do you feel like you can get through this, over this, and actually get something done in 47 days? I'm sure McCarthy is trying to figure out how to do it. And if Matt Gates, as I said, he has all the right in the world to present uh, the motion to vacate. Now it's time for us to join uh, the, the conference. And if we have to go across the aisle and talk to the Dems, what is so sinful about that? Nothing. Because most of the people who are watching us are either independent, Democrats, or Republicans, right? So that's what we need to do. Join forces and move the cart forward. And if that entails going to, uh, to the Dems, some of them, uh, and working together for the American people, for the American exceptionality, for what has created this country to be the best country on earth, then let's do it. What's so wrong with that? You uh, have a history of working across the aisle on certain issues. One of the issues where there's clear majority support but hasn't moved forward yet is on Ukraine funding. Uh, it was not in the, the stopgap bill. You've supported it, but make clear that more transparency is needed. Do you see a pathway in your Republican conference to get that to the floor? Listen, there is no way that we can abandon Ukraine. We haven't lost one American soldier in Ukraine. If we send the message to Vladimir Putin that we are going to be pulling out, then it's going to be a very, very big war after Ukraine because, you know, Putin has a very big stomach and he wants to eat everyone around him. And right now we're only investing 5% of the military budget. We have a problem at the border that we have to take care of, and we have a problem with the thousands and millions of undocumented who have come in and those who have been illegally in the country for many years. That's what I'm dedicating my forces on. You know, try to solve the border, seal the border, secure it, make sure that whomever comes in is the, is, is, has properly uh, used or has probably uh, come in in the proper way, I should say, and then take care of those who have been here and seal the border and stop the child sex traffickers and the fentanyl. We have, uh, fentanyl has killed 100,000 American uh, youth or boys and girls. We can stop that. Ukraine, send the message to Mr. Putin that we're here to stay and that we don't want to, and that we're going to stop in Ukraine. He's, he cannot go, he cannot expand the war. That's what I'm trying to say. So leaving Ukraine is a big mistake.
Just real quickly before I let you go, as I understand it, do you think the structure of a deal is border security for Ukraine aid? That's the way you pair them and then you move it forward. Of course, you, 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 you uh, single subject bills, you fund the government, the remaining bills that we need to take care of, you take care of Ukraine and you take care of the border. And you do the, the, Amer- the people's business. That's what we're here for, not just to wear the pin. We're here to work and all this bickering. There's no need for this because the American people are watching. And we are a nation of moderates. So let's come together and let's move forward. It's going to be a busy week. Congresswoman Maria Alvira Salazar, yes. thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank Back. you. Fascinating discussion, Phil. Thank you for that. Well, new developments overnight as failed talks have set the stage for what could be the largest health care strike in U.S. history. And happening today, the Actors Union and major studios are set to resume talks for the first time since the actors went on strike two and a half months ago. We'll keep you updated. Next. Welcome back. This morning, 75,000 Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers are bracing for a possible strike. It could happen Wednesday after their contract expired over the weekend. It would be the industry's largest walkout in U.S. history. The eight-union coalition seeking a new deal that includes pay increases, improvements to benefits, and protections against outsourcing. Our Rahel Solomon joins us now for more. They're at the table. Good morning. Good morning. But do they get a deal? Well, all eyes are on that, right? So we have a few days. Wednesday is when, if the strike kicks off, it would kick off Wednesday. And as you pointed out, 75,000 workers we're talking about all parts of the healthcare ecosystem. We're talking about, um, of course, the nurses and those on the front lines, but we're also talking about therapists, dietitians, the janitorial staff. So all sort of parts of the healthcare ecosystem. So it would kick off Wednesday. If they can't reach a deal, it would last three days. And what this would look like for patients would be um, longer wait times, perhaps to see a doctor. It might be harder to fill a prescription in some of these areas. We can show you a map, guys, of where exactly the strike, if it kicks off, would impact. So on the West Coast, we're talking about California, we're talking about Oregon, Colorado, but also here on the East Coast, Virginia and D.C. So you mentioned, Poppy, some of the issues here, like pay increases. But one of the big issues is actually staffing shortages, right? And we have seen this before with, with healthcare. So the workers say they're concerned not just about their own burnout, that they're being spread thin, but also about patient health care, right? That's a really big issue. Kaiser Permanente, for its part, says, hey, wait a minute, this is not unique to Kaiser Permanente. So they said in a statement, every healthcare provider in the nation has been facing staffing shortages. They point out that millions of people, and we can pull up the statement for you, millions of people have left the healthcare industry over the, the great resignation. And they say, we're not unique to this. Now, in terms of the strike, the company does say we have made contingency plan so that healthcare doesn't suffer. But I should say this issue of staffing shortages, it's not just unique to Kaiser Permanente. It's not even just unique to the U.S. Because remember, over the summer, we saw the healthcare workers in the U.K. also strike. So I should say in the 10 o'clock hour on CNN Max, a little shameless plug here, we are going to be talking to the director of the union. And I'm really curious to learn sort of what solutions the union has for these companies, because it's, it's a pretty complex issue. You have increased demand because of a of an aging population, also people who put off elective surgeries during the pandemic, they're now getting it, exactly. So increased demand, but fewer workers, right? So we're gonna talk about that in the 10 o'clock hour, but for now, all eyes over the next few days on On this. Exactly. We'll know maybe tomorrow, maybe Wednesday. Thank you, Rahel, appreciate the reporting. Phil. 
And as one strike could begin, another may be coming closer to an end. Today, the Actors Union major studios are set to resume talks for the first time since the actors went on strike two and a half months ago. It comes one week after the Writers Guild and studios reached a tentative contract agreement. As both sides go back to the bargaining table, they're still divided on key issues like streaming revenue share, pay increases, and artificial intelligence. The two strikes have had a huge financial impact. More than 100,000 behind-the-scenes workers have been without jobs. Major studios like Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery, CNN's parent company, have seen their stock prices drop. And analysts say the global box office will lose as much as $1.6 billion in ticket sales. Joining us now to discuss this and the return of late-night shows this week, CNN senior media, media analyst and senior media reporter at Axios, Sarah Fisher. Good to see you. Uh, I know you were at the Jets game last night. The Jets game, not the Taylor Swift game. Um, my working assumption in the wake of the writer's deal was that that would serve as kind of the construct or the baseline for these negotiations. Do you think this will wrap up quickly, or is there still a long way to go? I think this will wrap up quickly, matter of weeks as opposed to months. And it's because you're right. This has a lot of opportunity to pull from that deal with the writers to shape their own for the actors. But there are a few unique issues. So, for example, when it comes to AI, the writers deal strike has a huge AI part of it. But this one will need to address things like digital digital replicas of actors. That's not something writers have to worry about. And then actors also have other unique issues. For example, they want people to be able to do more tryouts in person, as opposed to having to do tapes themselves, which they say are more costly, et cetera. John Oliver, with quite a take. Let's play it for folks. And while I'm happy that they eventually got a fair deal and immensely proud of what our union accomplished, I'm also furious that it took the studios 148 days to achieve a deal that they could have offered on day one. I miss John Oliver. He's back. Late Night's back tonight. Late Night's back. So we have three of the major shows returning tonight. The thing I'm looking to see is how all of these strikes and the pandemic will shape Late Night forever. Obviously, these huge monologues are so fun, but they're going viral online. It calls into question whether or not some of the networks need to be paying some of these high-paid Late Night hosts to go on every single night. So we'll see how they address it tonight. I mean, they just go on a couple nights. Maybe just go a couple nights, maybe shift the schedule. I mean, late night and daytime talk has been so greatly impacted by the shift mm. to streaming. Now, it's important to remember, late night can come back after the writer's strike because they don't really need actors. But even though the actors, uh, the writer's strike has been resolved, so many of your favorite series that require acting are still on hold till we get this new deal. I know this is slightly off topic, but you're always a reporter, no matter where you are. Um, Including at MetLife. You were at MetLife last night. And what you said about your experience versus the experience those of us watching on TV had was fascinating to me. What was it? I was shocked that there was no mention of Taylor Swift inside the stadium whatsoever. So we didn't see pictures like that. She was never on the Jumbotron. If you were inside, you would have had no idea she was ever at the game. And I think it was sort of our New York, New Jersey way of saying, Taylor, if you're sitting on the wrong side, we're not going to give you any airtime. It's a football game. It's a, not the Taylor. Someone called it. Who called it the Taylor Swift game last night? You? No, I would never. Would never. There's too many Jets fans in here to call that a Taylor Swift Thank game. you. Thank you. Sarah. <laughs> Sarah, thanks for coming in. Good Appreciate to see you. It. So the Supreme Court starts a new term today on the docket, a Second Amendment case and a case looking at social media companies. Also today, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is being immortalized with a forever stamp honoring her lifetime of achievements. We sat down with her granddaughter to talk about her legacy.
And following a trailblazing career dedicated to service and equality, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is set to be honored with a forever stamp. That stamp, you see it right there, features Justice Ginsburg wearing her black judicial robe with an intricate collar, of course, symbolizing what became such an iconic part of her wardrobe. The U.S. Postal Service says the stamp is meant to honor Ginsburg's groundbreaking contributions to justice, gender equality, and the rule of law. Justice Ginsburg spent her life fighting for equality and believing it changed the sort. Here she is during her confirmation hearing. This is 1993. In my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench, women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. And I surely would not be in this room today without the determined efforts of men and women who kept dreams alive dreams of equal citizenship. Chief Justice John Roberts pointed to Justice Ginsburg's dedication to equality at a Supreme Court memorial service earlier this year, saying, quote, she changed our country profoundly for the better. So happy to be joined now by Justice Ginsburg's granddaughter, Clara Spera. She is a senior associate at Wilmer Hale and a lecturer at Harvard Law. It's great to have you. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. What does it feel like to look at this? It's really remarkable uh, and it's incredible that there will be her image in households and offices all over the country with her stamp. It's really incredible. I was struck by Judge Wilkinson. That's a retired conservative justice who was appointed by President Reagan and he reflected on how your grandmother might have thought about this honor. And he said perhaps she would see her forever stamp as a feminist response to Abraham Lincoln's penny, a small but lasting symbol of unity in a fractured time. What do you think? Yeah, I loved that piece by Judge Wilkinson. It's great. I definitely agree. And I, I mean, I think something like this would have been beyond her wildest dreams, really? uh, especially, you know, at her confirmation hearing in, in 1993 to think that she would be honored in this way. You know, it was so interesting to listen back to that. And she said three, perhaps four women yeah. on the court. We have four now. We do. This court is also very different than the court she was on. Mm -hmm. How do you think she would view this court right now? It has changed so dramatically. Well, I think that on first off, as you mentioned, having four women on the court is something that she would be absolutely delighted about. And as she noted in her confirmation hearing, she was hoping that those women would not be cut from the same cloth. And that's certainly the case. We have women from different backgrounds, different uh, legal viewpoints. And I think that's something she would celebrate. And certainly the court is very different from when she was on it. But she was on the court for a long time mm -hmm. and she saw different permutations of the court during her tenure as an associate justice. And I think she would recognize that this is part of the natural ebb and flow of what the Supreme Court looks like over the years. A lot of your pro bono work deals with what Roe instituted, which was a constitutional right to abortion, which has now been overturned by the Dobbs decision. It's been just over a year mm -hmm. since the court did that. And I want to talk about your grandmother's view of this. I know that she was certainly concerned about the status of reproductive rights starting from Roe because she often noted that Roe created a 
target for conservatives and those who are anti-abortion to focus on. And that's exactly what happened. And after 50 years of determined Mm -hmm. fighting from one side, Roe eventually fell in Dobbs. And no matter how Roe would have been decided, it would have created the same target. You told me back in 2018 that you hoped within a few decades more of your grandmother's opinions would be adopted as majority opinions. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that day is ahead, even if it's not now? I have to hope so. I want to end with, you talked about her dream. We opened with her dream that there would be maybe four female justices on the Supreme Court. We have that. But here's a little bit of what she told me when I was lucky enough to interview her. This is back in 2018. So final question. Help me finish this sentence, okay? There will be enough female justices on the Supreme Court when there are... You know what the answer is. When there are nine, of course. (laughs) There were nine men for a long time. When the history books are written, some have been, but continue to be written about her, what do you think the most important thing is that they will remind future generations? That she worked as hard as she could for as long as she could and did the very best that she could. Clara, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. It was fascinating to sit down, one, because of the moment, more broadly because of the legacy. You, you yeah. followed Ruth Bader Ginsburg so closely over the years. What was your takeaway from it? Yeah, and Clara's going to speak tonight at the whole ceremony. Luckily, the government's open to have this, uh, honoring her grandmother. Look, I think that even if you disagreed with uh, her on the law, she was a member of such good friends with the late Justice Antonin Scalia. She showed us, they showed us together what it was like to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. And I actually think about that a lot in this moment, sort of the way that she conducted herself and made her points, um, lessons she had learned actually from her mother, she told me. So I, I just think in this moment, look to, look to unlikely friendships, people who disagree, but actually work together. Probably be a better place if more people did. <laughs> it, it was a great interview. Thank you. Well, after nearly three decades, an arrest has been made in Tupac Shakur's shooting death. Does this close the book on one of America's biggest unsolved murders? We're going to discuss next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Just after the Mike Tyson-Bruce Selden fight, Shakur, along with record company executive Marion Suge Knight, headed for a nightclub, along with about 10 other cars. But while stopping at this intersection, a car with four people pulled up and opened fire on Shakur and Knight. After 27 years of mystery, a suspect in the murder of Tupac Shakur is set to be arraigned in court this Wednesday. That's according to our Las Vegas affiliate, KLAS. Dwayne Keith Davis was arrested Friday on charges of murder with use of a deadly weapon. Davis is not accused of shooting Tupac Shakur, but Las Vegas police say the 60-year-old orchestrated a plan to kill the rapper in retaliation for a gang-related attack on his nephew. Davis has long placed himself at the scene of the 1996 shooting in Las Vegas. He even wrote a memoir in 2019 in which he admitted to being in the passenger seat of the car from which the shots were fired. Joining us now, CNN anchor Sarah Seidner and CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Um, Sir, I want to start with you because you spoke exclusively with the stepbrother uh, almost immediately after this happened. How's the family reacting right now? You know, the first thing is they are extremely frustrated that it has taken 27 years to get to this point. But what gets them even more is that this person has been in the orbit of this investigation for 27 years. 
uh, since the very beginning. He was questioned by police. He admitted that he was in this car, the white Cadillac, where the drive-by shooting emanated from that killed Tupac Shakur and injured Suge Knight. And so they can't quite understand why now and why it's taken so long. Uh, in his memoir that you just mentioned, 2019 memoir was published by Dwayne, he's known as Keefe D. Uh, Davis. And in that memoir, he says all these things. He talks about revenge. He talks about the fact that his cousin or his nephew, excuse me, had been beaten up by Suge and by Tupac and that they were going to go after them, that they were looking for them. And here's what he says that really sort of nails this home. He says, one of my guys in the backseat grabbed a Glock and started busting back. He means firing back. First shot, skimmed Suge in the head. I thought that mother effer was dead. As the rounds continued to fly, I ducked down so I wouldn't get hit. So Tupac's family cannot understand why this investigation has just now come to the point where this man has now been charged in the killing of Tupac. Listen to what uh, his brother, Moprim Shakur, had to say. He, he obviously thinks he's innocent. Um, but at the same time, if you're following up on, uh, on, on a crime and you have a, a main suspect, and then this guy who they just indicted has been with him, has been telling the whole the same story the whole time for 27 years. Why are you just finally now considering that, you know, he was so close to the number one suspect? I, I, hey, I watch Law and Order. I'm not a cop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just saying. You, you feel like it defies logic that it's taken this long when this person's name has been um, at least spoken about as someone who was, I think, in the car when Tupac was shot and killed in the car of the initial first suspect in the case, correct? Self-admitted, yeah, self-admitted. I haven't seen none of his work. I haven't read his book or, you know, I've seen a couple of interviews, but he's self-admitted, so... You know, and people, but honestly, people talk all the time. You know, people want attention. What they're saying may not necessarily be true. So it has to be investigated and followed up, followed up on. And um, I guess nobody's been following up until now. Mopreem Shakur basically at the end of that interview said, look, I just miss my brother. Right. I miss my brother. He was taken from us. And now we're going to have to go through this all over again. We've been on a roller coaster already for 27 years because a lot of people were running their mouths. Now we're going to have to bring it all up again and go through what he believes will be a trial. Yeah, of yeah. course. His, his yeah. family, Sarah, is fascinating. Stay with us. Let's bring in John Miller to this. On this question of why this wasn't followed up on, um, a former police detective who had investigated the case before told CNN Friday that Davis had confessed to having a role in the murder back in 2009. But that confession was under something known as a proffer agreement which means they couldn't use it against him. He even, Davis even wrote in his memoir, quote, I sang because they promised I would not be prosecuted. How does that play into all of this? It's a key. I mean, KVD sat down, did this proffer, talked to LAPD and DEA in a case that was, that was headed towards bringing this murder charge um, and solving a lot of other shootings and things that happened in between. The proffer agreement, of course, grants him immunity from prosecution, but there are conditions to every proffer agreement. And one condition is you have to be telling the whole story and it has to be all true and you can't lie. 
And I think the tell here, as they say in Las Vegas, is when they did the search warrant at Keefe D's house just a couple of months back, and they went through the residence, and the warrant was drawn up for any tapes, any notes, any journals. You know, what they established was the story he gave during the proffer wasn't the whole story, and their position is it wasn't true, which means the proffer is no good. Mm. Because one condition is if you're lying, the whole deal goes out the window. The other thing is he was the last living person who was in that car who could be prosecuted. So this is Kevin McMahill, the sheriff uh, uh, and the chief of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department, and the DA saying, we're going to take a shot. He's going to argue, I have immunity from this, and we're going to argue he blew it. Wow. Fascinating. Final thought? Yeah, I was just talking about this proffer agreement. The other thing I think sometimes is that if they can corroborate that he was involved by someone else through other means, and maybe some of the search warrant did that as well because they got all kinds of things, electronics and so forth. But in the end, innocent until proven guilty. At this point, he has said a lot of things. There's a lot of things out there that he said in uh, the public view. Um, And we'll see where the case goes. Meantime, the family is just... All these things are coming back. All these hurts, all these frustrations are coming back at this time. So, Thank you. Great reporting as always. And John, the analysis. Appreciate it. So we're keeping an eye on Trump Tower this morning. The former president is set to leave from his apartment there because he's going in person to court for his the beginning of his civil fraud trial. That starts in just a little bit. And a pivotal week ahead for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he fights to keep his job. We'll dig in next. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on this Monday. Hope you had a nice weekend. We have a lot to get to this hour. Let's start with five things to know for this Monday, October 2nd. At any moment, Donald Trump will leave Trump Tower and head to court in New York City for the start of his high-stakes civil fraud trial. And allies of Kevin McCarthy are scrambling to stop a right-wing revolt led by Congressman Matt Gates. He says he'll file a motion to remove McCarthy as Speaker this week. McCarthy's response? Bring it on. Breaking overnight, California Governor Gavin Newsom picking an historic replacement to fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat, naming the head of EMILY's list, Lafonza Butler. And in battle, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is due back in court today as calls for his resignation grow louder. We're going to speak to a congressman who has jumped into the race in the Senate to unseat him. We have no winner yet in the Powerball jackpot. It is north of a billion dollars. Phil informs me if he wins, he will always continue to come to work, yes. which we're very happy about. Uh, no ticket matched all six numbers in the drawing this weekend. It is the second largest jackpot this year. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Everything I touch turn to gold. Well, New York is doing great, I will tell you. Uh, whether it's 40 Wall Street or whether it's Trump Tower or any of the other things that we own is, is doing great. I'm really rich. I'm very rich. I've built an unbelievable company. The money you're talking about is a lot. For decades, Donald Trump has been telling us all how rich he is from his real estate business. Well, just two hours from now, he will be in court fighting for his reputation and real estate empire as he stands accused of inflating his wealth by billions of dollars and overvaluing his buildings to deceive banks, insurance companies, and the public. 
Trump's civil fraud trial is set to begin in Manhattan at 10 a.m. Eastern. And the former president says he'll be there in person. We have live team coverage this morning. Kristen Holmes is outside Trump Tower where he's preparing to leave. But let's start with Kara Scannell, who's at the courthouse. Kara, this is a civil case, not a criminal case, but it could have serious implications for Trump's business empire. That's right, Phil. It already is having implications for Trump's business empire. But when court gets underway today, about 10 a.m., Trump will be squaring off across from the judge, Judge Arthur and Gorin, who is overseeing this case and will ultimately decide the verdict in this case. It's not a jury trial. Now, this judge has already dealt Trump and his business a blow, saying that Trump did engage in fraud for 10 years, persistent fraud by inflating the value of some of his properties, including Mar-a-Lago, his apartment at Trump Tower, and what prosecutor, or in this case, the attorney general's office aims to prove at this trial is that they did this. They inflated the rates to get better rates of insurance and interest rates on loans. So the attorney general's office is seeking to get damages in this case. That's really a big part of what it's what is at stake here, as well as individual accountability. They're alleging that the Trumps, that's Donald Trump, his two eldest sons, um, engaged in fraud by inflating the value of these assets, by falsifying business records, and by committing insurance fraud by giving these faulty statements to you insurers and banks. Uh, so Trump is on the witness list. He won't be testifying today. That will be later on in the trial. But he is showing up today to show his face to this judge, this judge who will ultimately make the decision. And it's a change because when Donald Trump was accused by E. Jean Carroll of sexual assault and defamation earlier this year, he did not attend that trial. The jury awarded her $5 million. He's showing up today on opening day. And the, his lawyers and the uh, state attorneys will give opening statements, and then it will move to witnesses. Now, the judge has set aside three months for this trial. It may not take that long, but certainly a change of face here for Trump. He's showing up. He's going to show up to the judge, show why this matters, because the judge has already, in addition to finding he committed fraud, said he was going to cancel some business certificates. It's not yet clear exactly what that means, but a lot is at stake for Donald Trump at this trial. Phil, Poppy? Kristen, he moved, rescheduled a deposition in a different case just so he could be in court today. It's really interesting. Why, do we know why he wants to be there? Yeah, Poppy, look, I've talked to a number of his advisors and allies who say he has been increasingly agitated about this trial in particular. And he wanted to show up as a show of force, really sit there in the audience looking at the judge as these opening remarks were made. Scara noted he's not going to testify. He's not going to be called as a witness today, but he does want to be in the courtroom. And he did post this on True Social last night saying, I'm going to court tomorrow to fight for my name and reputation. Then he goes on to slam the attorney general. But then I want to read you the part afterwards, because this is what Trump has been really fixated on. He values, talking about the judge, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach at $18 million. Mar-a-Lago being his home in Florida. Trump has been fixated on this particular part of the judge's ruling. He said that it's outrageous. He has called allies over it, saying it should be worth more money. And when we talk about Trump as a whole, it's not just his business. It is his brand. He played that clip at the beginning, talking about how Trump has sold himself as a rich businessman for decades. He also sold himself like that in 2016. That's part of his entire shtick, really, on becoming the president, saying, I'm going to fight for you. I'm a businessman. I know how to negotiate. Look at how rich I am. I can make you rich as well. And it's not lost that he is still running for president again. As you said, he scheduled another deposition, but he also is coming from Iowa, where he had a campaign
main event yesterday and just is starting to show you how the legal side of this and the campaign are going to be so intertwined as we move forward closer and closer to the election or those primaries. Kristen, thank you. I know you're watching closely. Kara down at the courthouse. Appreciate it very much. Phil. Well, from New York to Washington, where it is a crucial week for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he battles to keep his job. Now, it comes after he struck a last-minute deal with Democrats to avert a government shutdown. But Congressman Matt Gates, he's leading a right-wing hardliner revolt to oust the Speaker. I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy this week. I think we need to this rip week. off the Band-Aid. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy. It's worth noting some Republicans not buying what Gates is selling. They are the reason that we had to work together yesterday with House Democrats to pass ACR. That is not the fault of Kevin McCarthy. That's the fault of Matt Gates. And in quite a twist, it's actually Democratic allies who could save McCarthy from Gates if he pushes forward on that vote. But there's no consensus right now to where the minority party stands. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us live from Capitol Hill. Lauren, I think that's the big question right now. They're holding their fire. But what role do we think Democrats are going to actually have here? Yeah, I mean, Democrats could be the deciding factor, Phil. There's no way around that reality for Kevin McCarthy. But the Democratic leadership, they're warning their members not to cut side deals, not to try to figure this out on their own, but instead wait for leadership to make a decision and wait until they have a family conversation about the path ahead. You saw that last night in a notice that went out from Catherine Clark, the Democratic whip, who said if this is brought forward from Matt Gates, that there is going to be a caucus meeting to discuss it. And right now, Democrats are not united on several factors. A, what they would do if this came to the floor, if they would save Kevin McCarthy, and B, if they did try to help McCarthy, either by voting present or voting with Republicans on a procedural step to table this resolution, one of the key questions is what extractions would they be trying to get? You hear some Democrats and Republicans talking potentially about a rules change, some kind of power sharing agreement. But I talked to one Democratic member yesterday who said that he's been warning colleagues that particularly when it comes to that question, do you really want to buy into a government that you don't have full control over. So there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of varying opinions, and that's why leadership has been very clear with their caucus. Keep your powder dry. For his part, House Speaker McCarthy is defiant, saying that if Gates wants to do this, go ahead. He's coming for you. Can you survive? Yes, I'll survive. You know, this is personal with Matt. He's more interested in securing TV interviews than doing something. He wanted to push us into a shutdown, even threatening his own district with all the military people there who would not be paid only because he wants to take this motion. So be it. Bring it on. Let's get over with it and let's start governing. There there's a trust deficit, though, between Republicans and Democrats, and that was on full display on Saturday when McCarthy made that last-minute decision to bring a short-term spending bill to the floor of the House and then didn't give Democrats really much time to read it. Democrats had to use delay tactics to try to give themselves a little more time to scrub the text, make sure there weren't any poison pill amendments. That's just the latest episode that Democrats say make them very weary about entering into any kind of agreement to save Kevin McCarthy. Phil. 18th Congress. Lauren Fox, thank you. Appreciate it. Poppy? All right. We just heard last hour from one Republican lawmaker who says she does not support an effort to oust McCarthy and raises a key question for those looking to remove him. Listen. 
Kevin McCarthy is the man for the job, and he has an overwhelming majority of members within the GOP conference. We're with him. You know why? Because he's done a good job. And if it's not him, who? Joining us now is Republican Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio. He's a member of the Freedom Caucus, also serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He voted against the 45-day continuing resolution on Saturday, but voted for Speaker McCarthy on all 15 ballots back in January. Good morning, Congressman. It's nice to have you. Good morning, Poppy. Thanks for allowing me to join you. So why did you vote no on this resolution? Look, it sustains the status quo. I mean, Republicans didn't campaign on the status quo. This is Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden's spending bill with their policies. So uh, I, I have to have a change. We have to have either policy or spending cuts. We proposed that, and unfortunately, all Democrats opposed it. 21 Republicans opposed it. So we didn't send over what I thought we should send to the mm -hmm. Senate. And to me, a pause is better than the status quo. You think you're going to get there? Uh, what took the sort of nine months to get to this point? You've got now 45, 46 days to get this done. You think you get there? Yeah, I think we have to. And look, one of the plays that wasn't called here was, you know, Speaker McCarthy just referenced a lot of military in Matt Gates's district. There's a lot of military all over the United States and, frankly, the world. The House passed a spending bill. If we want to fund the troops, we could have simply sent over our defense bill. So I think at the end of the 45 days, we have to be prepared to fight for what we've passed as Republicans in the House of Representatives. And hopefully we get some that are bipartisan where Democrats join us and say we want a focused military, not one that's distracted uh, by all these policy um you know, diversions that the Biden administration has dumped on our Department of Defense. Congressman, I wonder if you agree with what uh, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said over the weekend. Here he was. The American people have won. The extreme MAGA Republicans have lost. It was a victory for the American people and a complete and total surrender by right-wing extremists who throughout the year have tried to hijack the Congress. Your uh, fellow Republican, fellow member of the Freedom Caucus, Byron Donald, said yesterday that you guys didn't get anything out of this continuing resolution. He pointed to the border, et cetera. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why, you know, 90 of us voted no. There's really nothing in it to like for people that campaign on changing the status quo. Uh, you keep funding Biden's open border. You keep funding his woke and weaponized military and Department of Justice. Uh, it is a total sustainment of the status quo. I think the only victory that people could point to is it was a, a bit of a setback for the globalists that want uh, regime change wars all over the world. So there was no funding for Ukraine in it. Uh, but there was apparently a side deal to have that in a separate vote. So what I've done is I've reached out to Matt Gates and Speaker McCarthy to say, can we have sort of a negotiated agreement so we can stay focused on our appropriations so that at the end of 45 days, we send over everything we've passed to the Senate in only a CR on the things that haven't yet you, passed. Just a couple of days ago, you have put forward um, legislation called the Define the Mission Act. Basically, you want the president to have to inform Congress within 30 days uh, of a specific, just looking at the words here, the specific comprehensive strategy if you're going to back more funding for Ukraine. President of the White House, the Pentagon's been warning they are very close to being out, maybe in less than 45 days of increased funding for Ukraine. President Zelensky told senators when he visited with them in September, quote, if we don't get the aid, we lose the war. Congressman, is that an outcome you're willing to accept and that you think 
the American people should accept. I hope it's not an outcome that the Biden administration wants to accept, but let's go back to where he started. I mean, the first thing Joe Biden's administration did was offer us President Zelensky a ride out of Ukraine. They but I'm asking about Russia now, but just Congressman, where we are now, hearing what President Zelensky said and the reality of where we are on the funding, is that an outcome that you think is acceptable? Now, do you believe that the Biden administration doesn't have a mission? They won't share one because they don't want to be held accountable. If you take Victoria Newland's uh, words, though, what she says, and she's the Undersecretary for State, what she says is that we're pursuing a regime change in Russia, including war tribe war crimes tribunals for Vladimir Putin. I'm not saying that's unjust, but I'm not, I, I tell you, that's not a mission the American people support. Uh, and it's not one that the people of Ukraine can accomplish. So if that's the mission, yeah, you might grind the Russian army down, but you're grinding the Ukrainian army down even worse, and you're grinding the country down. So why wouldn't you be working on a negotiated agreement in Ukraine? And the Biden administration's work to prevent that. I do want to get your take on McCarthy, because, again, we said at the outset, you've been a big supporter of his. But 90 Republicans, including yourself, voted against this bill. And we just heard him say, I will survive. Do you think Speaker McCarthy can survive this with the gavel in hand, just looking at the votes? Look, I have uh, Matt Gates and Speaker McCarthy, both talented guys. I will say, you know, Matt kind of reminds me of Dennis Rodman. Uh, you know, he's a guy that finds a way to win often. Uh, he was tough to coach, but at least he listened to Jordan. And in the House right now, if you listen to Jim Jordan, we're better off keeping Speaker McCarthy and working to accomplish uh, what we said we would do. And, you know, look, I, I know Matt believes that Kevin hasn't kept his word, and frankly, so do Democrats. But I think we have to come together and work to say we have to pass our agenda. And we have passed 70 percent of our funding bills. We should have never sent over a status quo appropriations uh, package is that when we when we've passed 30 percent of the funding we should have sent that with the continuing resolution on the things that haven't yet passed so is that a yes you think McCarthy survives this with the gavel in hand I don't know it, okay. it is going to be an interesting week because he can't do it without Democrat votes and if he gets Democrat votes he's going to lose a lot of Republicans well, it is going to be an interesting week. That's for sure. You guys have your work cut out for you. I appreciate you joining us this morning, Congressman Warren Davidson. Thank you. Thank you. Phil. Interesting week indeed. Also this morning, there are new developments in the Georgia election subversion case. Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick has been subpoenaed to testify. The first on CNN reporting. That's next. And in Spain, the deadliest nightclub fire in decades. At least 13 people are dead. The nightclub was ordered to close in 2022 because it lacked a proper license. Firefighters have questioned if the club had an emergency exit. The mayor says three of the victims have been identified through fingerprints. The rest will go through DNA testing and that it's unlikely any more bodies would be found. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New developments in the Georgia election subversion case this morning. Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick has been subpoenaed to testify. Carrick has been identified by CNN as one of the unindicted co-conspirators. This comes as prosecutors plan to prepare for trial in a matter of weeks. I want to get straight to CNN's Paula Reed live in Washington with this first on CNN reporting. Paula, what are you learning here? 
Well, Phil, we've learned from Carrick's attorney, Tim Parlatori, that his client has been subpoenaed ostensibly to testify for the trial that is expected to begin at the end of the month. But he is demanding that the district attorney's office grant his client immunity before he would let him testify. As you just noted, Carrick is one of the unindicted co-conspirators in this case. He is not named in the indictment, but CNN, uh, through our reporting, we have identified him as co-conspirator number five. And this shows, the subpoena shows that prosecutors are clearly trying to secure the, the cooperation, the testimony of someone that could help reveal some important details about exactly what Trump allies like Rudy Giuliani uh, were up to in and around the election. But this also shows the challenges that they are going to face. If someone is an unindicted co-conspirator, uh, very few defense attorneys are going to let their client just take the stand and do anything other than plead the fifth, invoke their Fifth Amendment right, unless they have some type of assurances that they will not be charged. Now, in a letter this morning to the district attorney's office, Tim Parlatori says that the district attorney's office told him, quote, if we wanted to indict Mr. Carrick, we would have already done so. But so far, they have refused to put anything in writing. We reached out to the Fulton County District Attorney's Office this morning. And they have not responded. So Bernie Carrick, Paula, and thank you for this reporting. It's really interesting. Already cooperated with the special counsel's investigation. So I just wonder how is this time different? So there's a little bit of overlap, but these are two really different cases when it comes to Mr. Carrick. With a special counsel's investigation, he and his attorney sat down for an interview with investigators working for Jack Smith uh, in their investigation into January 6th and efforts to subvert the election. But he is not an unindicted co-conspirator in this case. That also appears to be a much more narrow case. Of course, former President Trump, the only one to be charged as of now. His lawyer says ahead of that interview, he received a standard proffer letter, got the regular assurances. But it's quite a different situation down in Fulton County where they have listed him in that broad indictment. So I think any good defense attorney is going to ask for some sort of assurances before letting their client take the stand. But right now, Parlatori says, look, if down in Fulton County, you don't give us these assurances, he's going to take the stand and he is going to invoke the Fifth Amendment mm -hmm. to every single question you ask him. Paula Reed, thank you for the reporting this morning. California Governor Gavin Newsom moved quickly to replace the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. We're going to break down a historic appointment next. Also, a pro-Russian politician has secured enough votes to become the next prime minister of Slovakia, posing a challenge to NATO and European Union unity. Well, this morning, California Governor Gavin Newsom is set to appoint Emily's List President LaFonza Butler to fill the late Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. When Butler is sworn in, she will become the third black female senator in U.S. history and the first openly LGBTQ senator to represent the state of California. CNN's Kyung La joins us from Los Angeles. Now, Kyung, what has the reaction been? This happened very quickly and I think surprised some people. Uh, certainly. It took some Democrats here in California. It took them really aback. And if you think about it, though, and when they take a beat and they think about this choice, it does make sense politically. But
but Butler is not currently holding an elected position. She is somebody who is a formidable political figure, especially in the state of California. Nationally, she's known for leading Emily's List. But here in California, she is known as a very strong operative. She did lead as a senior advisor Kamala Harris's uh, presidential run in 2020. And she also led a labor union, the most powerful labor union in the state of California. So she is deeply regarded. She's also an ally of Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, her selection, as you point out, Phil, is uh, fulfilling a promise that Governor Newsom made that when Kamala Harris vacated her Senate seat to become Joe Biden's vice president, that he would appoint a black woman. And she will be the only black woman serving in the U.S. Senate. She also does certainly embark on that historical journey, being the first open lesbian to serve in the Senate. But all of this, Phil, does scramble this election. The Senate seat is up for grabs next year. There are already three powerful California Democrats running, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, as well as Barbara Lee. So whether or not LaFonza Butler decides to jump in and maintain and run as a candidate after holding this seat for a year, that is going to be the open question. I am told that there were no preconditions in her taking this uh, appointment. So uh, it's going to get very crowded and very interesting, Phil. Yeah, not a caretaker. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. This is already a very intense race. Kyung La, thank you. You bet. Joining us now, former Democratic Congresswoman from California, longtime friend of the late Senator Dianne Feinstein, Jane Harmon. She was with Senator Feinstein the day before she passed away. This is a picture of the two of them. Congresswoman, it's nice to have you. Of course, we, we heard from you and your reflections you know, when we lost her on Friday, and we appreciate you being here with us this morning. I'm interested in what you think she would have made of this appointment to, to her seat for now. Well, I would never dare to speak for Diane, uh, who spoke <laughs> for enough. herself until the very end. As you know, I was with her just a few hours before she died, and she looked so healthy and vibrant. It's, it's such a huge loss, such a huge loss. This is a different kind of appointment than I think she would have expected but I think, uh, you know, she, the, I don't know if she, if she knows this woman or not. I don't. But she certainly knew of and, and I'm assuming was supported by Emily's list over the years, as I was. Uh, it's a formidable uh, group supporting uh, women for Congress and getting their endorsement was a huge deal. Uh, she probably knew this woman. The, the, the new news for me is no preconditions. I had thought he was planning to uh, um, uh, nominate a caretaker, but this does mix up the race, and there already is an African-American uh, woman in the race, Barbara Lee, uh, a former aide to Ron Dellums, whom I, I served with and uh, adored. Uh, so, uh, And the other candidates, uh, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, I think are formidable too. Um, but my point is that this could mix up the race if she decides to stay in it. It also will give her more clout in the Senate, if she is not a caretaker, I suppose. Uh, the crucial thing is for Alex Padilla to help her uh, learn the ropes quickly and be a senator, not just a, a campaign person. And I assume he wants to do that. I've read some uh, very positive comments by him about her. Uh, I want to move on to Ukrainian foreign policy in a minute, but you said something interesting that you don't think that this, this is the selection that Senator Feinstein would have expected. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I, I, you know, this woman is not exactly like Dianne Feinstein. I don't know that Dianne would have expected uh, who is like Dianne Feinstein. Let's go there. Nobody. Nobody would have the clout that she does. Uh, but I think there were other names floating around. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I don't want to speculate. I think I understand why Gavin Newsom did this. I want this woman to succeed. I don't know her, but she seems absolutely formidable. Yeah, yeah she, um, LaFonza Butler, not only served running Emily's List, but also um, was a union president in California. She worked with uh, now Vice President Kamala Harris's 2020 presidential campaign. She ran uh, public policy at Airbnb. So she's got a lot of unique, also private sector experience, Ah, which I think is going to be interesting in the Senate. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Can we move? I mean, I'm just learning about her. So uh, she does have private sector experience. Good thing. Also. Um, can we move on to what we saw happen in Slovakia? And the, the Robert Fitzo uh, has gotten enough votes to be the prime minister there. He'll need a coalition around him. But he, um, he is being called by many as pro-Russian. The Russians just out with a statement taking issue with that. But th- it's just interesting. And I wonder what you think it does to the sort of, sort of cohesiveness of NATO and, and the EU writ large as it comes to backing Ukraine. Well, uh, I think NATO is strongly for Ukraine. I just interviewed Jens Stoltenberg uh, the other day, and boy, there's just no ounce of, of daylight between his position, whatever it takes, and, and, and not. Um, NATO has stresses and strains already. Uh, Hungary's a member of NATO. Turkey's a member of NATO. Uh, they're not exactly all in all the time. And, and in fact, they're uh, so far not, not blessing uh, yet. Uh, the admission of Sweden to NATO, which has been approved by the other states. I think uh, the NATO alliance is strong, durable, and uh, the, the, this new leadership uh, will uh, may, perhaps uh, make a few things difficult, but I'm still bullish on NATO support for Ukraine. What I want is U.S. support for Ukraine. It was sad to leave the funding out of the, uh, uh, the CR on, on late Saturday night, but I was enormously pleased to see a, a bipartisan letter. Let me state that again, bipartisan letter from uh, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, uh, Patty Murray, Susan Collins, uh, Chris Coons, and Lindsey Graham uh, in support of funding for Ukraine. And I hope they will find a way to uh, get that done in the, the next uh, six-week period. Congresswoman Jane Harmon, thank you very much. We're sorry for your loss. I'm glad thank you got you. to spend some of those final sorry hours for, with Senator Feinstein. Sorry for California's loss and all of our losses. She was a great woman, great person. Appreciate you being here this morning. Well, Taylor Swift is firmly in her football era, at least two weeks of it. And the NFL <laughs> is embracing the attention. Also, someone who likes to embrace attention, our own Harry Anton. He's going to break down the numbers on just how big the impact has been. Here's a live look also this morning at Trump Tower. The former president will leave any minute. He's expected to appear in person at the beginning of his civil fraud trial right here in New York City. Seventeen times. That is how many times the cameras cut to a shot of Taylor Swift as she cheered on her rumored boyfriend, Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, during Sunday night's game against the Jets. That count, provided by the and Phil Mattingly, just one indication of the Taylor mania that has swept the NFL since Swift appeared at the Chiefs game last week. Joining us now is Chief Data Reporter Harry Enton. Between you and Mattingly, I'm trying to get on board here with this being the biggest story in the country. Come on. We're going to get you there. 
Just by week 19 oh, in the God. first week of the playoffs. We're going to get you. Okay. Go ahead. Do your thing. I'll do my. I already gave you the data, 17. There you go. Why don't you just come up here next time? You can do it yourself. All right, let's take a look here. I want to give you an idea of just this Taylor Swift effect. So the Google searches for the Kansas City Chiefs are up 114% this week compared to before Swift started appearing at these ball games. So, you know, Taylor Swift is really jumping in there and making the Chiefs more popular. But it's not just that. Take a look here at Travis Kelsey's metrics post-Swift at the games. His podcast with his brother, now number one on Apple. How about his Instagram followers? Up 900,000. How about his jersey sales? Some moolah going in here. Up 400%. So the fact is, Taylor Swift coming to these games has upped the metrics for the Kansas City Chiefs, and it's upped it for her beau, Mr. Kelsey, as well. First off, the podcast was already very successful. Yeah. Second yeah. off, you seem to be implicitly going down the, the role of like, oh, this is making Travis Kelsey, and I'm deeply offended by that. But I do want to know, who what do else? you think has more power, Taylor Swift or the NFL? Yes. It's like Godzilla versus... Like, King the, Kong? Yes, exactly. See, I, I know my old monster films. All right. The NFL versus Taylor Swift on revenue. The average NFL team last year made $581 million dollars. Swift's Eras Tour in ticket sales alone in North America, in ticket sales alone, estimated at $2.2 billion. $2.2 billion. We're talking about three, four times as much here. So the fact is, in my opinion, it's Taylor Swift who is dominating the average NFL team. Now, let me take you a little nugget further and give you an understanding of why perhaps Taylor Swift is so big and is propelling the interest in the NFL and, of course, her bow. Statistically similar, great performances. So my buddy Neil Payne over at The Messenger basically put Taylor Swift on the same page, sort of statistically, how good she is compared to the average. How good is Taylor Swift? Well, if she was an NFL player, she'd be on the same page as Tom Brady through this point in her career and Barry Sanders, who, of course, could run with the ball like nobody's business. So I'm a big fan of uh, Taylor Swift, despite Phil and I's bad blood this morning. Oh, haha! Ha. Nice. I did it. I, that, that, you have to do that, right? Even let him in here. Thank you. Thanks, Thank buddy. you. It's great. Well, joining us now to discuss all of this, maybe even a little bit of Harry as well, Shagun Oduolowu, host of Boston Globe today. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you. I needed to know what you thought about this, just period. And I've been thinking about this for two weeks. <laughs> give give really it has. to me now. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Oh, well, well, first, those earlier comments, I'm just going to shake that off, right? We shake it off because there are over 30 NFL teams. So half a billion times 30 is more than what Taylor makes. And the question was the NFL versus Taylor Swift. And yes, the NFL is huge. But we love this story because, first of all, how many tight ends do we know by name besides Travis Kelton? We know Gronk because obviously he's Gronk and here in Boston, he's a god amongst men. You maybe know Shannon Sharp, who is arguably one of the best sportscasters, but he's in media. Tony Gonzalez, he's in media. You don't really get a lot of football players that are non-quarterbacks that have this type of stardom. So Travis Kelsey, who covets the limelight, let's not forget his dating show, Travis and his brother, they're fantastic football players, but they do like being in front of the spotlight. And then you get a pop princess. This is our sports version of of, of uh, Megan and Harry, right? Like you get a 
bona fide pop princess in Taylor Swift. You get our royalty in America, a sports athlete. This is a match made in media heaven. Look, I saw more Travis Kelsey commercials than I've ever seen uh, in last night's game. Mike Tirico, one of the best sportscasters in the business in his own right, in the third quarter, is talking about, hey, Taylor's still here at the game. So it's a big story. We love it. America loves it. And come on, let's let these two crazy kids just be in love. Aww. Come on, Poppy. I'm on board. I'm just, I'm on, I am on board. <laughs> and you know who else I think is right. going to be on board? Shigun until is... they break up. Uh, wait, uh, what? Poppy. What? Do well, not Poppy, say until that. They break up, until they break Stop. up. And then she, well, but then she'll write songs about Travis and she'll and they'll go be like amazing. triple platinum. Oh, and they'll so be amazing. Like, I believe in this love. That's MO. I believe in this love. <laughs> Enough. So mad at Okay. Me. Okay. <laughs> but you know who's going to have fun? Late night. And late night's back. And you know this is going to be all over late night, right? It is going to be all over late night. It's great to have late night TV back. That writer's strike, for many people who don't know, who kind of watch TV or watch movies, they don't realize the ecosystem that is a late night show or a show like yours or a show like mine that has producers and writers and cameramen and all the way down to the cleaning crew. And so when those shows go off the air, it hurts not just the pocket of Steve Colbert or Jimmy Fallon. There's a whole large group of people that depend on those shows airing. So Having late night back, I hope, will give leverage to some of these other striking entities, right? John Oliver uh, touched on it on last mm -hmm. week tonight that, you know, this strike didn't have to happen, right? The, the producers, they could have come to the table and offered this deal from day one. And writers are the backbone of any television show, of any film, of the industry at large. You can't show pictures and have a story without the story writers. So it's great to have the late night shows back. It's great to have these writers back at work. Hopefully it will bolster the SAG after strike because mm. late night shows will be kind of boring if they don't have actors and actresses to interview. I second that, by the way. I don't think you'd want to see what happened to this show if we didn't have any of our great writers. No, you can't write the whole show, Phil. I'm very aware that. of that fact. Good, <laughs> thank you. Thanks, I appreciate it. Well, you're looking live now at Trump Tower and the courthouse Donald Trump will head to in just a short time as he as his New York civil fraud trial begins. And New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez will be back in court today as calls for his resignation from Democrats grow louder. We'll speak to a congressman who's jumped in the race to unseat him. This reporting just into CNN, top Republicans are expected to try to table the Matt Gates resolution to oust Speaker McCarthy from his job. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. It's just unclear when that vote may happen. Could be as soon as today. Well, just hours from now, in battle, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is due back in court. Menendez has pleaded not guilty to corruption charges. He is accused of accepting bribes to benefit Egypt in exchange for cash, gold bars, home mortgage payments and other compensation. Menendez has denied any wrongdoing and is dismissing calls from 30 Senate Democrats urging him to resign. New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim was one of the first lawmakers to call on Menendez to step down and has now jumped into the 2024 race for the Senate seat Menendez has held since 2006. Congressman Kim joins us now. I uh, appreciate your time. Uh, I want to get to kind of the House dynamics of your day job in a minute. But to start with your decision to jump in, uh, I think in talking to Democrats, most of whom speak highly of you, they were still surprised by how quickly you made that decision. Did you have an infrastructure kind of in wait or did you just decide to go without a campaign apparatus no. set up? 
Yeah, um, no, no, no infrastructure. It was not something I was planning on doing. In fact, Saturday when I announced my run uh, to challenge Menendez, it was my kid's eighth birthday. I had to ask him permission to uh, step out from our family celebration to be able to send that tweet out. Uh, I felt compelled to do so. I felt compelled in part because of my family, the fact that he is my senator, he is my kid's senator, and I want them to be able to look to a leader with integrity, and I believe that New Jersey deserves better, so that's why I jumped in. There, there's often an assumption uh, in Democratic politics in the state that you kind of have to come up a specific way. You have to be from a certain region or of a certain place, um, none of which I think would be boxes that you would check, and yet I think that's probably why you've raised as much money as you've raised coming out of the gate. Do you have a sense of kind of what your chances are at this point, given you've taken a different route? Yeah, look, um, my philosophy is always about making sure that the people have a choice. And you're right. When I jumped in to run for Congress six years ago, you know, no one in the political establishment knew my name at the time, uh, but it was my home. You know, I was running in my home community. People here knew me. Uh, so, um, you know, that's what we're up against right now. You know, we just want to make sure that, you know, we're all trying to have the accountability that we need. We were able to raise about a million dollars in this first week. I mean, it's been incredible seeing the outpouring of folks all over the country. So, you know, I'm excited about the energy and I hope that the people have a choice in this and that uh, they see this as a choice for integrity. It'll be fascinating to watch going forward. Some of your New Jersey colleagues may hop in the race as well. We're still kind of waiting to see. But I do want to ask you about the House. You know, the reporting from our colleague, Manu Raju, who I'm sure chases after you on a regular basis on Capitol Hill, about <laughs> Republican leaders moving to, to table or try and kill any motion to vacate. They'd need Democratic help. What's your sense right now? You're not considered a, a far-left progressive who doesn't come across the aisle. Is that something you would be amenable to? I mean, look, uh, I'll take it as it comes when we get down to the, the Capitol later today. But uh, I will be honest with you, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy's job security is, is not at the top of the list of my priorities, right? especially right now when we are still uh, working through trying to figure out how to avert a shutdown a couple weeks down the road. I mean, we had millions of federal employees unsure what's happening. A lot of people concerned about what's a lot of seniors concerned about Social Security and other issues. So I, I really think that we need to make sure we're focused on the American people. And if it looks like we're just trying to figure out our own internal musical chairs, uh, you know, people are not going to stand for that. So I, I look, I'll deal with it as it comes. But right now, it's not something that's taken up any of my my uh, my bandwidth. You have been a key voice on national security issues inside the caucus, particularly as your class came in. Um, on Ukraine, it, the emergency funding was left out of the continuing resolution. Um, do you see a pathway for Ukraine funding at the end of this 46-day period? Uh, I do. I mean, that's certainly something that we want to focus in on. What we heard from uh, our military leaders, uh, at least in terms of our conversations, is that, you know, they do ha still have enough runway to be able to continue the support. Uh, a lot of the concerns actually about not being able to have uh, some of this funding go forward is about the United States being able to resupply our own stock. So, you know, that's something that I'm concerned about. We want to make sure our readiness is as strong as possible. Uh, but look, we have strong bipartisan support. I think we've had over 300 uh, members of the House of Representatives, a huge bipartisan support in the Senate. Uh, this is something that I think people recognize. We need to be standing up for democracy here at home and abroad. Do you think that uh, Democratic leadership could strike a deal related to the speakership related to Ukraine funding? Is that a pathway you could see? 
look, I mean, I, I certainly think that there's conversations that are that are happening that's thinking through these priorities. I mean, certainly, if that were to actually uh, come to be, it would need to be something that where we see what are we getting out of it? Because I'll be honest with you, uh, Kevin McCarthy is someone who's been on the wrong side of almost every issue that I've been trying to push forward, whether it's health care or climate change or, you know, the, the concerns about a nationwide abortion ban. These are things we cannot see come to fruition. So we need to see something significant. But like I said, um, right now, the main thing is we need to focus on delivering for the American people, uh, making sure we don't have a shutdown, making sure that we can show that we can govern and we have adults in the room. Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey, I appreciate the patience of your eight-year-old <laughs> on his birthday uh, hopping into the Senate race. Thanks for your time, sir. Thank you. All right. Before we let you go, take a look at this. We've got pictures of the courthouse in lower Manhattan. That is where the former president, Donald Trump, will arrive today, uh, where he has chosen, Phil, to go be in the courtroom for this civil trial. Which he didn't have to. Right. Um, and is clearly driven by more than just uh, his view on the legal proceedings here. Yeah. I think there's no question about that. Well, the future of his business is hanging in the balance. Much more ahead on CNN News Central. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Have a great day. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.